This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues. Oh, where do we start this week? So much to talk about. We could discuss former President Donald Trump and his latest rally where he threatened some of the officials investigating his actions or business practices. If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt. They're corrupt. What that unselect committee is doing, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. Or we could start with the federal response to the rise in crime across the country. With the midterms on the horizon, the Biden administration, through the Department of Justice, is trying to come down hard on those who commit crimes with ghost guns. The department is launching an intensified national ghost gun enforcement initiative to determine and deter criminals from using those weapons to cover their tracks. If you commit a crime with a ghost gun, not only are state and local prosecutors going to come after you, but expect federal charges and federal prosecution as well. So there's that. And then there's also this story, that bombshell lawsuit brought by former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores. He alleges that the Dolphins owner offered him $100,000 if he intentionally lost games. I didn't grow up with a lot. This game, you know, changed my life. Uh... So to attack the integrity of the game, that's that's what I felt was happening in that instance, and um, I wouldn't stand for it. And that was Dolphins owner Stephen Ross? Yes. Yes. So. And you think it hurt your career? I think it, I think it hurt my standing with, with, within the organization, um, and ultimately was the reason why I was let go. Flores is also taking aim at the NFL's Rooney rule. To go on a, what was going to be a, what, what felt like, or what was a sham interview, I was... Uh, I was hurt. I mean, the ruling, the Rooney rule is in, intended to, uh, you know, give minorities an opportunity to sit down in front of uh, ownership. But I think what it's turned into is um, an instance where guys are just checking the box. Um, and that's been the case. I've been on some interviews in the past that um, where that's I've had that feeling. But, you know. All right. So if I had to pick, well, here's what I would do. Why don't we just start with former President Donald Trump, who is still a major fundraiser. In short, he's raking it in. But is he losing his grip on the Republican Party? Shane Goldmacher is a reporter with the New York Times. Shane, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on. All right. So you've written extensively about President, former President Donald Trump, 
And his grip on Republicans. But what you've written lately is that uh, he doesn't have as strong a grip on the Republican Party as he used to. Yeah, it's a needle to thread here, which is that Donald Trump remains really overwhelmingly the most popular figure in the Republican Party. He's still the strongest fundraiser in the Republican Party. He's still the most coveted and feared endorsement in the Republican Party. Um, at the same time, he doesn't have quite the the hold he once did have. Uh, polling sort of is showing that in a lot of different ways from a growing number of Republicans who say they might like Trump, but they don't necessarily want him to run for president again. Polls that talk about whether you're a Trump first Republican or a Republican Party first Republican. There's been a real inversion toward the end of his presidency. Uh, a, a strong majority of Republicans identified as Trump first Republicans. And in a recent NBC News poll, uh, the majority was party first Republicans. Uh, and the erosion really has been across all different demographic groups. There's backlash around endorsements that he's been issuing. Uh there is, frankly, his own behavior, uh, the the way that he has taken a poke at Ron DeSantis, the way he does when he feels threatened in some way, when he sees a potential rival. So in a whole bunch of different ways, he's trying to put put together that, look, Trump remains the singular figure in Republican politics. But, you know, the star's maybe not quite as bright as it once was, or that much brighter than every other star in the sky. And so there, there are a few things that you mentioned there that I really want to get into because I, I really find this interesting because you have this former president, which in recent American history, we have, haven't really seen anything like this, where you have a former president so vocal uh, in so many different ways, uh, so adept at spreading false information but still so adept as well at getting people to listen and to pay attention and to buy into what he's saying. However, as you point out, he's got some rivals in the Republican Party now, and Ron DeSantis is one of them. And what's interesting about that dynamic is that they are, were, tight, buddies, friends. What's happening now? Yeah, so you have to sort of look back. Ron DeSantis was a, a member of Congress, not the most prominent member of Congress, and he launched a bid to run for governor of Florida in 2018. And, you know, the way he, he ran, one of the things he did is he appeared on Fox News a lot, uh, and he drew attention from Donald Trump in that process. And Trump eventually endorsed Ron DeSantis and did help Ron DeSantis win the Republican primary and become the next governor of Florida. You fast forward to today, and DeSantis is among those Republicans who has not ruled out running in 2024, whatever Donald Trump wants to do, uh, and has sort of emerged as the leader of what he calls the free state of Florida. In his recent State of the State address, the very beginning, you know, it wasn't a Florida-focused speech, even as he delivered it in the State House. This was a speech casting his role in Florida in a, in a national context. Um, and it's become clear that DeSantis does have the potential to be a national candidate at some point. Uh, he's up for re-election in 2022 first, but he has not sort of, sort of bent the knee to Trump the way some other Republicans have said, I won't run if Trump does in 2024. And, and so one of the splits that, that Trump has faced 
uh, with Republican voters has been over the vaccine. Uh, you know, he was an, a quiet, really, at the end of his presidency, advocate of getting the vaccine out. He pushed through this Operation Warp Speed, the, the creation of a vaccine, endorsed it as president. Um, he didn't take the vaccine on camera, but he did say that he was vaccinated early on. And there's been pushback among Republicans around the vaccine. And, and Ron DeSantis has been one of those Republicans who has at first urged people to get vaccinated, but has also sort of focused on treatment and more recently not said whether or not he got a booster. Uh, and Trump went out and said, look, that's gutless. He didn't say Ron DeSantis is gutless. He says the kind of politicians who don't say whether they got a boosting booster shot were gutless. Uh, and not long after that, Ron DeSantis uh, said one of his regrets from the early pandemic was not pushing back harder on some of the potential restrictions and lockdowns that were sort of coming from Washington. He didn't talk about Trump again by name, just as Trump didn't speak about him. Uh, but they're sort of shadow boxing a little bit. They're both in Florida. Trump has moved to Florida in his post-presidency. And so there's this sort of clash happening. Um, again, Trump is still this dominant figure. And DeSantis is not nearly as known as Trump across the Republican Party. But there have been some polls taking taking sort of stock of where they where the race would be if they were both running. And Trump is running away in these races. But he's running away by a little less than he was a few months ago. Uh, Patrick Ruffini, Republican pollster, uh, told me of some polling he did. Trump was up 40 points over DeSantis a few months ago, back in October. Uh, that was down to 25 points in January. And more interestingly, if you sort of take out the name identification part of that, you know, frankly, fewer people know who Ron DeSantis is. Uh, among Republican voters who knew both of them and liked both of them, Trump was ahead by only nine points. That's in the real race category. And again, these are hypothetical, far too early polls. It doesn't actually measure what a Ron DeSantis versus Trump primary would look like. Trump just announced having $122 million in the bank in his political accounts. He has other advantages besides his name ID. What it does tell you is that Trump's complete dominant position for so long in the party isn't what it once was. It's still amazing to me that given all the le legal scrutiny of, uh, and this is going back some, but the inauguration spending, uh, that people are still donating to President Trump's political apparatus in big numbers, but they are. They not, they absolutely are. He So on Monday was the filing deadline for all the campaigns the last quarter of the 2021, as well as the Trump operation for the last half of 2021. And it showed at the end of the year what it showed at the start of 2021, which showed it all of 2020 and 2019 and 2018 and 2017. Donald Trump is the biggest magnet for money in the Republican Party. You can look among online donors, among big donors. He is still the person raising most of the money. And it's not just the money that's going to him. If you look at the other people trying to raise money and the political party committees of, of the RNC and the House and Senate campaign accounts, they're all raising money by invoking President Trump. They're talking about Trump all the time. They're talking about win a seat at a dinner with Trump. They're talking about win a signed hat. You know, it's Trump, Trump, Trump all the time. He is not just raising the money for his own campaign. It's his name that is motivating Republican small donors on the Internet across the entire party apparatus and it's his name though that is garnering all this attention from federal prosecutors state prosecutors i mean everybody under the sun it seems there is that uh investigation in georgia related to uh his calls with the 
uh, current um, Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Um, and so he's under investigation there. We know he's under investigation in New York. And still you have a relatively large segment of the Republican Party still supporting him. However, you write that among some conservative activists, there is some grumbling about former President Trump's endorsement of the current Texas governor, Greg Abbott. Why are they criticizing his endorsement of Governor Abbott? Well, I want to get to Abbott in just a second for you, but but just mention something about that district attorney in Georgia. Over the weekend at, at one of Trump's rallies in Texas, where, where Greg Abbott was in fact booed, over the weekend, Trump basically said if he's if these prosecutors move against him in New York and Atlanta, he called for the biggest protest we've ever seen. And it was really like a, a take note moment because, look, the last time Donald Trump urged his supporters to gather in a mass demonstration, it was on January 6th of 2021. And we know how that ended. It ended with his supporters marching on the Capitol, breaking into the Capitol, clashing with police. Um, it was an ugly scene. And it really shows how unchastened he is around that issue. At that same rally in Texas, he dangled pardons for for the people involved in January 6th, if he were to be reelected as president and run again. You know, he is sort of embracing the most hardcore parts of his base, including people who violated the law and and rioted at the Capitol. Uh, so, so go back to Texas and, and his endorsement. There are elements of the Trump base, the sort of MAGA movement, as he and others call it, that seem to have sort of grown up and, and existed on their own and separate from Trump. And I think Texas is an example you know, Greg Abbott is heavily favored in his primary next month. He has an early endorsement from Trump. But when Greg Abbott got on stage, he was booed. People were chanting rhino. And the way that he he sort of escaped that situation was he started saying, let's go Trump and shouted Trump, I think, a couple of dozen times in a very short speech. Um, but it shows that the that, that MAGA base that Trump built, that he created for the Republican Party, it doesn't necessarily always agree with him anymore. And in sort of the way I described it, in the story earlier this week is that it's matured to the point where it can exist on its own. And, and even in opposition to Trump, uh, the Abbott endorsement is one, the sort of more interesting and, and really kind of surprising episode came in a house race, which is, you know, below most people's radar in Tennessee where Trump endorsed a woman who has not even announced her campaign yet. Uh, Morgan Ortegas in for a house seat in Tennessee around Nashville and there was real swift blowback from from the right for this endorsement from Trump saying he he made a mistake. He's gotten bad advice. He should have endorsed this sort of online Trump activist, Robbie Starbuck. Uh, you know, in the story, right, that Trump had actually met with Morgan Ortegas the day before he endorsed her and endorsed her the next day. There have been efforts to sort of professionalize this endorsement operation. It remains haphazard. He calls people, they give him advice, and then he does what he wants. Um but it showed this sort of like loud pushback from people like Candace Owens, from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who endorsed Starbucks a day and a half after Trump endorsed Ortegas, that, that again, that MAGA movement doesn't necessarily feel like it needs to line up 100% with Trump, uh, that he is a leader of the movement, but he's not the only leader, that there are others sort of emerging, and that sometimes they want to push their leader in a different direction. Again, it's a little different from a President Trump who was so dominant during which, like, I can't remember movement pushback on his endorsements 
when he was sitting in the White House. Given all that you've said, given all of your reporting, could you see a Republican presidential primary with President Trump, Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, ooh, Larry Hogan? What do you think? Well, you know, the, the Hogan is a really interesting inclusion there. I mentioned some polling from Patrick Ruffini earlier. What was the opening in terms of uh, a non-Trump Republican lane? And and what he said he's found is that there is an opening for, for Trump alternatives, but the opening is for sort of a next generation Trump Republican, that if you break the Republican Party into sort of its core elements, the anti-Trump portion is really just a small minority of the party at this point, that the, the vast majority is pro-Trump Republicans. The opening is that there are pro-Trump Republicans who are pro-Trump, but necessarily Trump himself. They don't need Trump to run again. Maybe they're ready for a new face for the party. And, you know, a year and a half is so far away. Uh, but look, I, you know, I, I think of it not just in terms of will somebody run against him in 2024, but for a lot of politicians, the decision to run for president is not just about that one race, but it's about A, creating a national brand for themselves and B, creating the possibility of eventually becoming the Republican nominee for president, right? The Republican Party has this long history pre-Trump of elevating the the second place person from a previous campaign. John McCain was the nominee in 2008. Well, look, he was the runner up in 2000 to George W. Bush. If you look in 2012, it was Mitt Romney who was a runner-up to John McCain in 2008. And Ted Cruz has actually said as much. He said, look, I was the runner-up to Donald Trump in 2016. Maybe I'm going to be the next Republican nominee. If Trump runs again and he doesn't clear the field, there's a possibility for a different Republican to run in that space and maybe not attack Trump, but offer themselves as a forward-facing alternative. And maybe that's a better shot for them to build a national profile than in a 17-person open field in 2028, right? There's a lot of considerations that aren't just about, is Trump weak? Is Trump strong? Or can these people win? I don't want anyone to go away from this and say, oh, Trump is certain to lose. He can't possibly be the Republican nominee again. That's not true. He remains the front runner. He remains universally known. He has a hundred plus million dollars in the bank. He has an incredible set of advantages. The point is that something is shifting and those advantages aren't quite as big as they were before. The gap to second place and to the repest of the Republican field is not quite as overwhelming as it was right after he left the White House. I just don't think we can look too far ahead Without also taking into account all of these different investigations, which, you know, I know a lot of America, you know, many of former President Trump's supporters sort of brush off as some partisan attack. But these are serious investigations. The one in New York uh, that concerns his business dealings. Yeah, that's a factor. There's also, you know, the, the investigation that we've discussed in Georgia. Um, which there is audio evidence of President Trump asking for the Secretary of State to do something 
um, which is against the law. And frankly, anybody else who'd done that kind of thing probably would have been in jail a long time ago. So I, I wonder if at some point all that baggage really weighs down former President Trump, even if he is thinking about a run in 2024. Well, one of the things that Trump has been able to do really since the beginning of his entering politics has been to sort of bend reality of these issues to his benefit, right? He stirred so many controversies in that first 2016 campaign, and yet sort of few of them stuck to him. So, you know, there is a difference between facing actual charges and spinning matters. Uh, and if you face actual charges for business misdeeds in New York uh, or in Georgia, that's going to be a different issue entirely. You know, that said, look, you know, he again, he has done things out loud and in public that if done behind the scenes would have created uh, big controversies over and over and over again. And so, you know, certainly when when I've talked to people in his orbit and his advisors, these investigations are an annoyance, um, but it's not something that they are focused on in terms of his political future. <laughs> I'm chuckling because I wish I could compartmentalize that way <laughs> i mean you know these these investigations as i noticed they're on as i noted they're ongoing uh and there is so much more to talk about with you shane i really appreciate you coming on shane goldmacher with new york times thank you thank you Just over a week before the Super Bowl, the NFL is pushing back against discrimination allegations brought by a former coach. Brian Flores was the coach of the Miami Dolphins until he was fired. He went on CBS Mornings this week to tell Gail King, Nate Burleson, and Tony DeCopel why he was striking back at the NFL and his former team. As of today, there are three head coaches of color, including one black man out of 32 in the league. That's down from eight in 2018. Brian, I'll start with you. Last week, you interviewed for the head coaching job for the New York Giants. What happened leading up to that interview? I interviewed for the Giants position. I was set to interview on Thursday, the, the Monday prior. Uh, before, before I interviewed, I received a text message uh, from Bill Belichick saying congratulations on the Giants, Basically, essentially a congratulations on the Giants job. I have not sat down with the Giants. There was some back and forth, and I just uh, I asked him, Is this, are you talking to the right Brian? And uh, as you, you've seen through the text messages, he was actually uh, uh, – Thought he was texting Brian Dayball. Who they ended up hiring. Yes, sir. So at that point, how did that make you feel knowing that you were walking into an interview where a decision might have already been made? Uh, it was a range of emotions. Humiliation, disbelief, anger. Now, I've worked so hard to get to where I am from a, uh, in football to become a head coach. Put 18 years in, in this league and it was uh, to go on at what was going to be a what, what felt like or what was a sham interview. I was... Uh, I was hurt. And, but you uh, went knowing that you probably weren't going to get it. Why did. why did you continue to go? There's still hope. Maybe it's called it, call it the audacity of hope. You know, I have a belief that, you know, there's good in people. I, I just do. I get the sense from the lawsuit and from you right now that you had a feeling like, here we go again. This wasn't the first time you felt discriminated against in the league. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean the, ruling, the ruling rule is in, intended to give minorities an opportunity to sit down in front of uh, ownership. But I think what it's turned into is an instance where guys are just checking the box. And that's been the case. I've been on some interviews in the past that, where that's I've had that feeling. There's you know, always no way to, to to know for sure, but but you know. But Brian, the reason I, I, I the timing is really important here because you're actually up for two additional NFL jobs right now. Yeah. So yeah. why did you do this, knowing from your own statement that you may have sacrificed your future in the NFL? And you're a young man. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I I let both the teams know that we were gonna we we're gonna file, but 
look, I love coaching. Um, and I've heard this, from reliable sources you're a very good coach. But the <laughs> no record show. It. Always room for improvement. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I like to think that as well. Um, but this is bigger than coaching. I want to talk about the Miami Dolphins for a second. You make claims that you were offered $100,000 for each game this team lose subsequently uh, to get a better draft pick. I'm a former player. I know you as a coach. You want to win. I walk in that locker room. I want to win. I don't hear people from the front office and above making those type of decisions that can change the outcome of your coaching career. Look, this game's done a lot for me. I grew up not far from here in the projects in, in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn. I didn't grow up with a lot. This game you know, changed my life. Uh, so to attack the integrity of the game, that's, that's what I felt was happening in that instance, and um, I wouldn't stand for it. Here is the NFL statement in response to Brian Flores' accusations. The NFL and our clubs are deeply committed to ensuring equitable employment practices and continue to make progress in providing equitable opportunities throughout our organizations. Diversity is core to everything we do, and there are a few issues on which our clubs and our internal leadership team spend more time. We will defend against these claims, which are without merit. New York Giants statement. We are pleased and confident with the process that resulted in the hiring of Brian Daybowl. We interviewed an impressive and diverse group of candidates. The fact of the matter is, Brian Flores was in the conversation to be our head coach until the 11th hour. Ultimately, we hired the individual that we felt was most qualified to be our next head coach. Denver Broncos statement. The allegations from Brian Flores directed toward the Denver Broncos are blatantly false. Our interview with Mr. Flores regarding our head coaching position began promptly at the scheduled time of 7.30 a.m. on January 5th, 2019 in a Providence, Rhode Island hotel. There were five Broncos executives present for the interview, which lasted approximately three and a half hours in the fully allotted time and concluded shortly before 11 a.m. Pages of detailed notes, analysis, and evaluations from our interview demonstrate the depth of our conversation and sincere interest in Mr. Flores as a head coaching candidate. Our process was thorough and fair to determine the most qualified candidate for our head coaching position. The Broncos will vigorously defend the integrity and values of our organization and its employees from such baseless and disparaging claims. Now the Miami Dolphins. This is how you know this is a pretty big lawsuit uh, with all of these responses from the NFL as well as these three NFL teams. We are aware of the lawsuit through the media reports that came out. We vehemently deny any allegations of racial discrimination and are proud of the diversity and inclusion throughout our organization. The implication that we act in, in a manner inconsistent with the integrity of the game is incorrect. We will be withholding further comment on the lawsuit at this time. All the different statements from the three NFL teams, as well as the NFL itself, responding to Brian Flores's accusations. More to come on this. This is a big deal. Clinton Yates is with ESPN and the host of The Undefeated. Clinton, thanks for being with us. No problem. How are you today? I'm well. Give us a little background here, if you will. On on Wednesday, we all found out about this lawsuit. What can you tell us about it? So there's a couple pieces of background, and I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with various machinations of sports, but I'll explain it this way. Brian Flores was a coach for three years with the Miami Dolphins. His overall record was under 500, but his last two seasons were winning seasons. It was the first time that franchise had had two winning seasons in a row in like 20 years. So understand that from an on-field success standpoint of who Brian Flores was. He was fired. Now, 
a lot of the talk about how the NFL works is very difficult because of what's called the Rooney Rule, which is a rule that was instituted about 20 years ago that requires owners and teams to interview minority candidates for jobs. Now, there's been much discussed over the last two decades about whether or not this is actually effective, causation, correlation, yada, yada. I'm not going to get into all that, but what, what Brian Flores is saying is that basically not only is the rule a sham, but also there are farther problems that exist within NFL front offices and ownership that, frankly, are racist. And he names names. He uses examples. It's pretty much the biggest bombshell lawsuit to come from somebody inside this far in the NFL against the NFL, I would say, in the history of the league. Save Colin Kaepernick, and that's sort of where this discussion kind of starts at least today, on some level. Yeah, and how does Bill Belichick factor into this? He sent a text to a guy that he he thought he was talking to somebody else, ended up sending a text to Brian Flores, but he thought he was talking to Brian Dable, the new head coach of the New York Giants, right? Yeah, that's what um, Flores says. He's provided screenshots of the text. And, um, you know, listen, I'm not going to get into arguing with people about the validity of text. I don't think that he would have any reason to lie about this, but taking it at face value, it's pretty tough to read. There's a situation in which there's an exchange in which Bill, who, by the way, Flores coached under, which is the reason why they would have this kind of rapport in New England. Um, you know, they were texting back and forth, and Bill sort of says, hey, congratulations on the Giants gig. And he hadn't even interviewed for the gig yet, Brian Flores, that is. Turns out Brian Dable, another guy who currently works for Bill, did get the job. However, Flores didn't obviously know that, and Bill is the one who told him. And so, as my friend Harry Lyles Jr. said on Around the Horn yesterday, uh, Flores went from being what he thought was a candidate to an obstacle in a job. And look, just from a sort of general, I don't know, human pride, humiliation level, it's a pretty tough exchange. And I don't necessarily know that I blame Bill in any regard, but it is very weird to think about why he knew why another, how another team got their coach and a guy they were interviewing didn't know, and it was him himself. Yeah, you did a really good job of, of summing this up. It's a mess. It is a mess. It is a bad look for the NFL. You know, frankly, when Brian Flores was fired, I was one of the guys, and among many, I think, who were thinking, well, why was he fired? I mean, yeah, I, I heard that, you know, there was some rumblings about you know, he was hard to work with or for or something or play for. I don't know. But call the dog whistle, sir, just so you know. Hard to work with, excuse me, is a dog whistle for this brother didn't get along with our little boys club. I mean, I'm being very frank about that. You know what I mean? I think that when a lot of people heard that to your exact sentiment, it was like, oh, okay, one of those. All right, buddy. You know what I mean? We know what's going on here. And that's why it was so unfortunate to your point to hear this news because it's massive. It is, it is legitimately that big of a deal. I, listen, man, I've been in this business 20 years. You know what I'm saying? I've been writing about sports. I've been a sports fan for the 20 years before that. I'm not sure that I ever really felt the way that I felt in my life when I read and heard about what Brian Flores was trying to do. It just it, it, it encapsulated so much of a lot of different experiences, never mind NFL coaches. And I'm proud of this, brother, for having the strength to even be able to say something, never mind fight it. Yeah, I think he has a lot of support out there. You know, it took a lot of courage to come forward and to do what he did. Now, in a lot of ways, in terms of his lawsuit uh, concerning the, the Rooney rule, 
I mean, it's pretty obvious. You can be a, a casual fan and you just know by the way these coaching gigs were unfolding and how they were settling down and who was getting the jobs and who, you know, there would be rumors about who was, who was, uh, or reports about who was interviewing for the job. And you kind of felt like, all right, for example, and I, and I know I'm just rambling a, a bit, but I mean, I have this flow of information in my head. And, and, and for example, Byron Leftwitz, look at him. And what he's done in Tampa Bay, he would interview for these jobs, but for some reason he never get the job. Or Eric Bieniemy, uh, a similar situation. You have these talented black coaches. Nobody can tell me that they're not qualified for these jobs, but these talented black coaches who would interview for jobs but not get them. Yeah, well, I mean, and beyond that, I mean, I think that there's a different. I, I don't want to get too existential with this, but like, here's the issue. The 30, it's 28 men and four women who run the 32 NFL teams. Those two, those 32 humans at the core and at the end of it come from a place of, I mean, frankly, generational wealth and understanding of the globe that has really nothing to do with how the rest of us sort of operate in the world. They're only answering to themselves because the product that they happen to hold prints money. So when you think about what is considered right and wrong, like the reason the Rooney Rule exists to begin with, is like a major issue, obviously. And so when somebody says, hey, you're flouting the rule, to act like, oh, how could that be? We're nowhere close to that. Like, bro, you had a rule because this was a problem. Don't act as if we're not even talking about the same thing. And like, that's why this is so weird to me. I'm like, yo, you guys got to face each other. And that's the issue. They only have to face each other. There's nothing against the law technically about the way the NFL is doing anything. Now, the throwing games matter. That's a different discussion. But, like, unfortunately, that's the country we live in. If you want to have a club of people that can run their operation as long as people are paying for it, you can do it however you want. That's what the NFL is, man. And that's why Flores is, I think, going to be looked at favorably in history, as you said. He's got a lot of support because this is a tough hill to climb. You're fighting more than just one owner, one GM. You're kind of fighting the shield. And uh, a lot of people like what the product is, but they don't love the shield. And that's a hard, that's a hard thing to sort of negotiate. I think in every football fan's mind, and I'm not even a big football fan. This is just what I do for work and I follow it, but this brother's really going through it, man. So yeah, he's got my support for sure. Yeah. And he was, uh, he went public first on CBS mornings, which was great for, uh, our news division. And it was a great interview by our morning team. Uh, and, and Brian Flores, you know, I, as I was watching that interview on unfold on television, I was wondering, okay, is he going to work in the league again, or is he going to be the next Colin Kaepernick? You know, I, I honestly, what's weird about this, and what I was saying before, is that as big as this feels, it also doesn't feel like it's going to blow up his career. Like the, the the public opinion, the court of public opinion in 2022 is far more in his favor then I think it would have even been 10 years ago. And, yeah, Colin Kaepernick has a lot to do with that. You can't just blackball everybody. I mean, you can, but, like, you know, this stuff starts to add up. And he's kind of a different figure. He's not a quarterback. He's a guy that was really trying and was in the league. I'm not saying Colin Kaepernick wasn't trying. I just mean that the perspective of a player is always going to be different from the perspective of a coach in terms of how we view power balances. And this is kind of the whole issue. But, anyway, my point is, is that, like, I think that people really are behind him in a way that involves just genuine fairness that hasn't really been the case, you know what I mean, in a long time. And so, like, I could see a situation in which owners are like, hey, yo, bro, I'll, I'll hire the guy. I mean, unless it's going to create some rift between us. But this gets back to my point I was talking about before. They only answer to each other. And if the way that the code works is, hey, 
we're not hiring this guy. We're taking a vote. Like, what are you going to do? But I don't think that this is going to ruin his career because I think people are just kind of smarter than that now. And, like, he'll be able to do maybe not what exactly he wants to do, which is probably coach the Miami Dolphins, the team he built. But I don't think he's going to be out of football. I really don't. And part of that is me speaking that into existence. But it's just a different world than it was five or even ten or even five years ago. Well, and I hope he's not out of football. You hear former Patriots players that he coached uh, saying really good things about him, positive things about him. One other, one other thing that they said about him is that there is no way that he would ever throw a game, no matter how much money you threw at him. And that's the other part of this lawsuit that makes this such an incredible story, which I think could possibly at some point involve law enforcement, which is my uh, beat that I cover for CBS News. And I say that because in his lawsuit, he is alleging that Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, offered him $100,000 for every game lost during the 2019 season in an effort to tank for the number one draft pick. What, what do you think about that? And have you ever heard of anything like that happening? I mean, I know that there's been, you know, talk about, well, should teams tank to get the number one draft pick? But to actually see it on paper in a lawsuit, that's something. It's pretty tough, and I hadn't heard a bunch about it in football necessarily, but as soon as Brian Flores brought it up, a bunch of other dudes brought it up as well. Hugh Jackson brought it up. Hugh Jackson brought it up. I mean, like, this is not unheard of. So for him to put it down on paper and have two other coaches immediately corroborate it, Marvin Lewis did as well, it was like, whoa, okay. Well, this is just how y'all kind of operate. And so, listen, I'm not going to get into – sort of the moral quandaries of what is tanking games is ultimately just football. I don't really care about it from that standpoint, but I do care about it from a simple human to human respect standpoint in terms of how you run any sort of operation. You're asking somebody to compromise themselves for something down the line, but you're not giving them the security to let them know what the compromise is worth. You see what I'm saying? Like it's one thing to say, Hey, here's how we're doing it. I'm going to keep you. It's another thing to say, Hey, you're on shaky ground, but you better do it my way or else. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not the same thing. And so for me, that's a power dynamic and a power balance that only exists in the NFL. And I said this yesterday on Around the Horn when I won the show and did FaceTime. A lot of things that happen in workplace scenarios, particularly workplace scenarios, are not outright racist remarks or otherwise highly discriminatory behavior that is obvious to identify. It's just that moment where you think to yourself, you know what? If I wasn't black, you wouldn't treat me that way. And it's hard to explain, and I don't necessarily know that I need to quantify it, and I have no interest in it, but this is one of those deals where I think Flores was just like, yo, man, you wouldn't do this if I wasn't black. It's as simple as that, and that's where a lot of this stuff adds up to. Throwing games in the NFL is obviously unethical on some level and probably illegal, but like to me, it's about the treatment of that guy and what that means more than it is any result that has to do with the Miami Dolphins or anybody else in the NFL. I agree with what you're saying. In fact, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, okay, why, why did it have to be the black coach that this owner who has, you know, frankly, in his, in his past, there were some questions about, you know, whether he had some discriminatory behavior in some of his other businesses, by the way. But there, there is there, there is this concern. That, you know, why do you, why do you ask a black coach 
to tank games like that, tank a season like that. You know, there's already so much scrutiny on these black coaches winning games as it is. And so to be in this position where Stephen Ross allegedly went to Brian Flores and say, hey, here's a hundred grand if you tank this. I mean, it is really remarkable. Yeah, man, racism is a hell of a drug, bro. What do you want me to say? I mean, I'm not trying to be flip, but like, that's kind of the problem, man. You know, you want to scapegoat black folks for the things that you're scared to do yourself. What do you want me to say, man? This is America. It's unfortunate, but I believe Brian. And that by Brian, I mean Brian Flores. You know, I'm not trying to be offhand about this, but I think there's so much that goes into the psychology of what being a billionaire is that it's just not remotely relatable to you, me, most people. And unfortunately, because of the way that this country works, you know, a lot of times that involves a lot of just sort of root discrimination that I think even people who don't know what is going on do. I'm not saying that's the case in this particular scenario with Ross, but, you know, there's just things that are ingrained in how we operate that unfortunately play out in public, public stages, and one of those happens to be the NFL, sir. I don't know, you know, I was, I was trying to look online as we were talking about this, but you remember that little dust up in Miami with Kenny Stills, who uh, was at odds with Stephen Ross, and Kenny Stills is a black player, at odds with Stephen Ross, uh, first over a dispute uh, about a fundraiser for Donald Trump, uh, but there was also this um, dispute about the fight for equality and against racism and, and the support for Trump. And, uh, and so there were, there were some concerns among black players back then in 2019, uh, when this dispute with Kenny Stills, uh, arose. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do remember that, but I mean, quite frankly, the different tete-a-tetes in between different players and owners in the NFL are not, to, to me, that's not really what this is about. This is about, this is about a larger – this is about – sorry, I had a call coming in. This is about a larger kind of just understanding of what it is that everybody deals with. I mean, again, players and coaches are not in the same boat in terms of power balance on any level. Um, but that kind of tells you also why it's so weird that owners seem to refuse to let brothers be the mantelpiece to coach their teams from a leadership standpoint. Like, what are you so afraid of? You know, and that's that's an interesting question in that regard. And I think about that a lot, just like I said, on a larger sort of human level. Like, what is the actual issue here beyond, like, even if you were, like, you knew you were wrong about a guy. Okay, maybe he turns into Mike Tomlin. Maybe he doesn't. But, like, what? I mean, it's just football. Like, what is the big deal? And then you see things like, I don't know, Dan Snyder having people talk in front of Congress about the boorish behavior of him and his compatriots. And you start to think, all right, well, maybe this is a lot bigger than just one guy, one player. So this is a bunch of dudes running wild or whatever, and that's why this can't be really uncovered. So, I mean, it, you know, it's understandable in sort of the larger everybody sucks kind of context, but I don't think necessarily his beef with one player or whatever is necessarily that representative of all of this. It's just a much bigger issue total. Yeah, it is a bigger issue, and it's unfortunate that all of this has uh, developed you know, after a, what was really an incredible playoffs uh, for the NFL. And obviously there are a lot of people out there, fans of the Bengals who haven't been in the Super Bowl for a minute uh, and the Los Angeles Rams as they head toward the Super Bowl. But it was a really good playoffs, a lot of tight games. Yeah, it was the best ever. And, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll end on this because I got to run it because I'm actually in Los Angeles where the Super Bowl 
is going to be played. But this is one point I would like to credit Brian Flores with, which was fascinating, is that his timing on all of this is impeccable. There's a team up for sale in the Denver Broncos. There's a couple jobs still open around the NFL, and he is still interviewing, literally, himself. It's not like he's five years removed from this. It's not like he's been bitter forever. My man had the receipts, said straight up, here's what the deal is, and I'm still going to try to keep going whether you like it or not. And I think that the timing of this being during Super Bowl week after arguably the greatest two weekends of playoff football that the globe has ever seen is pretty well done on his part, man. Maximum impact, and there's no way around this. You've seen statements from various people coming out who he named in the lawsuit. If nothing else, he's made his point heard, and I think that that was ultimately what he had to be hoping for because ultimately that's really the first step in whatever the hell the cure to this so-called problem, if we're going to call it something as simple as that, is going to be. ESPN's Clinton Yates and the host of The Undefeated. Thanks, Clinton. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a good one. I'm going to go enjoy the beach. If you look at the crime stats in most big cities, they just aren't heading in the right direction. The Biden administration knows that. And officials in the White House understand the optics of that, especially with the midterm elections on the horizon. I had an exclusive interview with ATF Acting Director Marvin Richardson, and we talked about the availability of machine guns on the streets. That's right, machine guns. Dion, it's Houston Police. Let's do this If you're looking for a reason why crime is spiking, the ATF says unregistered and untraceable homemade weapons are key. So-called ghost guns can be made on a 3D printer. ATF Acting Director Marvin Richardson says technology is partially to blame for the recent rise in gun-related crime. How have ghost guns complicated the job of ATF agents? Technology has allowed us to be able to take a firearm and reduce it to a box of parts that isn't necessarily covered by the federal firearms laws. You've got different platforms that allow you to order it from the privacy of your home, have it delivered to your front door, and you can assemble those firearms together. Uh, And I've seen videos on YouTube uh, where you can see people doing it in record time, 20, 23 minutes. Remember the the Gun Control Act 1968 is 54 years old. Uh, The National Firearms Act of 1934 is 88 years old. So So, those... uh, So you're saying laws, you're saying the laws on the books are outdated? No, I think that the actual dates of the statutes enactments would say that. At this ATF firing range in Virginia, we watched as a legal semi-automatic handgun was converted into an illegal machine gun in a matter of seconds. Earl Griffith, an ATF firearms officer, says a small conversion device like this one can turn a legal semi-automatic handgun into an illegal machine gun. Capable of firing off more than 30 rounds almost instantaneously. So that that was uh, about 30 rounds. 30 rounds. Yes, emptied the magazine of 33 rounds, yeah. Increasingly, the ATF says these modified weapons, along with homemade so-called ghost guns, are leaving law enforcement outgunned. How many guns do you have in here? About 15,000. Acting Deputy Director Thomas Chittam showed us the reference library ATF uses for its investigations. But guns assembled, built, or modified at home are almost impossible to track. We haven't seen so many machine guns used in crimes since Prohibition. Is that right? That is right. Your average law enforcement officer is not armed with a machine gun. Increasingly, criminals are. Richardson says so-called trigger pullers, criminals, and gang members using guns 
are well known to law enforcement. So what we've learned is that those people that we go after uh, have an average of eight arrests prior to us having that contact with them. Eight arrests. And, and in many instances, eight violent criminal arrests. With just over 2,500 special agents and a budget that has remained relatively flat in recent years, Richardson has this message. We really have to work together. Communities, law enforcement, our elected officials, everyone has to work together to become a part of the solution to this problem. That is this week's America Change Forever, thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Download and review this podcast. Check your local listings to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can also listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.